This past week, there was a man named Antonio De La Rosa. He set a world record by paddleboarding across the Pacific. Maybe you saw this, 2,500 miles, others say 2,900 miles, but I think once you kind of get past 2,000 miles, in my opinion, that's quite a great feat, right? Battle from San Francisco to Hawaii. Spent eight hours, eight to 10 hours a day paddling, standing up, because that was the deal, to set the record, paddling, standing up across the Pacific. So if you average this out, it was almost 33 miles a day. And he turned 50 during the adventure. He planned to complete this task in 70 days, but he failed. He did it in 76 days instead. But still, that's pretty impressive, knowing that he had to spend a few extra days going around a hurricane to get to Hawaii. He had very little sleep while he was on his paddleboard, but he remained steadfast. In the evening times, as he would lie down to sleep, he would have to wake up every hour to make sure that he did not get off track. He had a solar panel there, and he had a little cubby, I guess, where he could tuck away for the evening. But with very little sleep, he continued forward until he finished the task. And he said, my arms and legs are my motor. And so his goal, why would he do this other than he is an adventure seeker, and he is. But he did this to raise awareness about man-made pollution in the ocean. And he did say that as he continued forward, he saw a lot of pollution within the ocean. Well, this is impressive. And, and in no means am I trying to belittle his accomplishments. But as great as this is, it still pales in comparison to the great work that Jesus Christ did when he came here on this earth. And as he came, he remained steadfast. His arms and legs were not his motor. It was the will of the Father that acted as his motor. That was his motivation every day. And his goal is that he did raise awareness of man-made sin, but not only to raise awareness of it, but to save man and woman from their man-made sin. And so with this great truth, we look to John chapter 7 today, to Jesus Christ who remains steadfast. And if you're taking notes, you may want to write at the top there, trust in the steadfast work of Christ. Trust in the steadfast work of Christ. I want to set the scene for you so we can have a good understanding of what's happening in this context. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So after the turning away of many disciples, Jesus continued to minister to the needs of the people in Galilee. The steadfastness of Jesus Christ is like none other. Christ wasn't dejected because many turned away. He didn't quit in that moment. He was well aware of the world in which he stepped down to save and knew that many would turn away from his glorious light. So being aware of this, he was also aware of the Jews that wanted to kill him. So therefore he remained in Galilee. So the steadfastness of Jesus Christ is like none other, but also the wisdom of Jesus Christ is like none other. 
notice here that although Jesus knows the sovereign plan of the Father, he does not go out looking for danger. He didn't say God has a sovereign plan, so I can just do whatever I want to do. As we see the psalmist pen that God has written out all the days of our life because he indeed is sovereign, that does not mean that we just go about life saying, well, if God is sovereign and he has a plan, he predestines, he chooses, he sets apart, he does all these things, I can just do whatever I want to do. That doesn't mean that. It, It means that we still continue with a steadfast spirit and we walk in wisdom, just like Christ does before us. I greatly appreciate the example that Christ has set for us. He has come to do the will of the Father, and this requires wisdom and a steadfast spirit. And so for us, although we follow Christ due to the sovereign will of God, we do not go looking for unnecessary trouble. And Jesus was not going to go looking for unnecessary trouble. If we live for Jesus, we will face trouble. Trouble will come to us. We will face tribulation. As we just quoted together in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world by loving the Father and carrying out his will. That's what he came to do. We overcome the world as more than conquerors, by the way, as we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. We overcome the world as we walk in Christ Jesus. So the work that Jesus came to do and accomplished, we walk in that work. We trust in that work, the steadfast work of Jesus Christ. That's how we overcome So that kind of sets the stage here in verse one. But then in verse two, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, I imagine that not many of us in this room uh, celebrate the feast of booths as it comes around each year. But in Leviticus 23, it reveals the fact that there were seven feasts that the Jews would gather together to celebrate throughout the religious calendar. But there were three of these which were singled out as of special importance. The Feast of Booths was one of these feasts that was of special importance. The Feast of Tabernacles, which it was also called, was the Grand Harvest Festival. So when the Lord of the Harvest was praised for all of his temporal mercies, this one was the most joyous feast of the year. It was not observed by Israel until after they had entered and settled into Canaan. And so here's what it looked like. They would build booths because it would remind them of their dwelling in booths at this feast as they wandered in the wilderness. And so for all of you campers and glampers out there, you would like this feast. If you enjoy the fall time and the smell of the fall, you would enjoy going into Jerusalem during this time to celebrate. And as you would walk into Jerusalem, you would notice that there were many uh, temporal booths that were set up. Uh, And and this is what they look like. It's um, called a sukkah. And and today they still celebrate this feast. It's called the Sukkot. Uh, This year it will be October 30th through 
or October 13th through the 20th. Just in case you want to put that on your calendar, you want to build a sukkah, you can do it. Wooden booths were set up, and here's how they were structured. All structures followed the rabbinical building code, which means that walls were extra thin, and the roof was to show enough of the sky so that you could see the stars, as it would be a reminder to the Jews of how they wandered in the wilderness and how God had provided for them. And so even today, there are many booths that are built and people celebrate this feast looking back to their time in the wilderness. The Sukkot, this celebration, was the last of the fall festivals and was held at the end of the agricultural year when the grapes and olives were harvested in Israel. So this was a time to thank God for all of the preceding year's provision and to pray for a good rainy season from October until March. But also during this celebration, they would take some branches and spices and bring those together. Actually, it wasn't a spice, it was a lemon. They'd have a myrtle branch, a willow branch, a palm branch, which they'd hold in one hand and then a citron in, in another, which is like a bumpy lemon. And they would carry these around to remind them of God's provision during the wilderness. So taking the crops from different vegetation, they would praise God for his faithful provision over their lives. So all of this was exciting. It was colorful. And it also meant that this event was filled with many people. So a lot of people will come in for this festival. So this sets the context for when his brothers are saying, hey, big festival coming up. A lot of people are going to be coming into town. We all enjoy this time. This would be a good time for you to make yourself known, Jesus. Verses three through five. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. The brothers, Jesus had brothers, half brothers, that is, uh, not brothers from a different mother, but definitely brothers from a different father, Why? Because Jesus couldn't come and share the same bloodline of Adam. So he came through God the Father, sending him through Mary. So being the oldest in the family, he was blessed to have these young brothers. And these young brothers knew him as Jesus, but they did not know him as Jesus Christ. And we know how it is in the household. Little brothers can be a pain to the oldest brother. And this is one of those moments. What are their names? Matthew 13, 55 tells us James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So these four brothers are speaking to Jesus. And they're saying, hey, why don't you go so that they'll see your disciples, the ones that walked away, maybe you can get them back. If you'll go into this feast where thousands of people come and gather together and reveal yourself. So, In translation, they're saying, hey, go win them over, Jesus. But remember, this advice is coming from his own brothers who did not believe him, who had not been won over yet. They're saying, hey, go show yourself. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. What they're telling him is, hey, you're going to struggle in the popularity polls if you don't get yourself out there. You need exposure. People need to see you. If you're going to be successful, you must put yourself out there. That is, if you are who you say you are. 
Now, Jesus faced many temptations, and I imagine the temptation at this point was to smite his brothers. But he refrains from doing that because Jesus did not come to win over the world, but came to overcome the world. Much different philosophy to be carried out as he would enter into Jerusalem. He wasn't going to win a popularity contest, to please everyone so that he could gain a crowd. No, that's not how you overcome the world. But did you catch the conditional if clause from his brothers? If, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. I want to point out that this if is driven by selfish ambition. And man, how that would just get under my skin. If you're not convinced by now that I'm the Messiah, I'm your brother. In case you didn't notice growing up, I never did anything wrong. They're not convinced. This if is involving a lack of patience and wisdom. It is motivated by worldly intentions and aspirations. We see the worldly intentions in 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's from the world. This if clause is from the world. We also see this if clause in Matthew chapter 4. If you are the son of God, as Jesus was coming out of the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, then all of a sudden there's Satan. If you are the son of God, Satan knows good and well he's the son of God. If Satan, a little pest coming before Jesus, if his brothers model the same thinking as Satan, who I'll remind you is the prince of the world. Satan's not roaming around in the pits of hell right now with a pitchfork. Maybe, maybe you think that because you saw it in some children's book. Go home and burn that children's book. <laughs> Satan prowls around like a roaring lion on this earth and he is the prince of the air. He has real power leading to real destruction. He does not overcome the power of God He has to submit to the power of God, but because he came and led many astray, he continues to do that very thing until one day he will be destroyed. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's not Jesus, that's Satan. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is writing to the church and he's saying, this is who you used to be. You used to be under the authority of Satan. He controlled you today if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not free to worship however you would like to worship. Some would say, I don't want to follow Jesus because I want my freedom. I don't want to submit myself to the local church because I want my own freedom. You don't have your own freedom living like that. 
You are under the power and authority of Satan. You are a slave. You are condemned to death. You are a child of wrath. But you do not have to be. If you will look to Jesus today, you can be set free from this authority. But in this passage, this if shows that his brothers, his very own half brothers are under the authority of Satan. They themselves were children of wrath, reasoning with the same mindset as Satan. So let us take note of this, that all of those who are in their sin, separated from a holy God, not trusting in Jesus, think with the same mind as Satan. So you got any other verses to back that up? Sure do. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world, that's not Jesus, not anybody else. That's a little G-O-D. He's not a real God. He thinks he's a God. He's not. In their case, the God of this world, that being Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Do you know what that means? They cannot see. Why? Because Satan has the authority to blind them in their sin. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So his half-brothers here, they cannot see that he is the Messiah because they're thinking with the same mindset as Satan. Today, there are people all around us who are thinking with the same mindset as Satan. Why? How did they get to such a place? Why did they do this to themselves? They were born into it. That's the problem with the first Adam. And that's why we need the second Adam, Jesus. Our precious little children, in and of themselves, think with this same mind. Anybody who has not placed their faith and trust and their confidence in Jesus thinks with this mind. And so his brothers are saying, show yourself to the world, which is a very worldly statement to make to begin with. I mean, we say very similar things today. Look out, world, here I come. Or go show the world what you're made of. Yeah, that'll convince them. Go tell them. Or it's me versus the world. You know, everything's against me. I'll, I'll come at you, world. Me versus the world. That's, that's not godly thinking. That's sinful thinking. And the brothers want Jesus to show himself to the world. But there is a major problem with this tactic. The world cannot receive Jesus without ceasing to be the world. Can't get around it. If you're of the world, you have the mindset of Satan, you can't just receive Jesus. You can't see. So Jesus has no intention to go into Jerusalem and perform a bunch of miracles to Win over the world, rise in the popularity poll. No, he would soon go into Jerusalem and be held up on a cross for all of the world to see and through this sacrifice, draw all men to himself who would be saved and become the savior of the world. This is what he would do. and He would overcome the world. So this is why Jesus remains in Galilee. Now you may have already known all that. 
So hey, I, I knew that. As soon as I read that, I, I knew that what was going on. But I just wanted to refresh you so we would all be on the same page. Leading to verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. For not even his brothers believed in him. This demonstrates the imperative need of God's almighty regenerating grace. How does regeneration work? Regeneration works with God first. Because if it's, if it's true, and as we have read, that Satan holds captive the mind of the unbeliever, we don't make the first move. We're not free to. God, by his love, comes forth. The power of the Holy Spirit and awakens us to our need for Jesus. A real faith leading to real repentance and a real following of Jesus. That's what's needed even for his brothers here who do not believe in him. So if growing up in a home with Jesus was not enough to make his brothers Christians, then how could anyone think that they are a Christian simply because they grew up in a quote-unquote Christian home? To all of our children who are here today, if you think that you're safe just because your mom and your dad believe in Jesus and your grandparents believe in Jesus and you think that that's just you because you grew up in that, I want to ask you this question, have you placed true faith in Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus? Parents, don't think that it's enough that we would bring our children to church and just because they're here at church that they learn enough and that because they have good behavior that indeed they're a Christian. We touched on this last week and I think we need to touch on it again. Look, it's not enough that we just bring them here. We must disciple them. This happens through family worship. Day in and day out. Do you know who's responsible for family worship? For your children being discipled? Parents, you are. You are. Do you know that the majority of moms and dads do not participate in family worship? But how did Abraham... And his children know. How did Moses and his family know? How did Joshua and his family know? We go on down the line. How did all of these who have come before us, how did their children know? When Abraham was taking Isaac upon the mountain and Isaac looks and he says, hey dad, we have everything here, but what we don't have is a sacrifice. How did he know that? Family worship. Family worship. It's because the dad modeled Christ's likeness, a trust in God. And for us, we cannot settle for it being enough that our kids come to a good community group hour and a good ministry on Wednesday nights and say that, hey, if our kids just get enough of that, hey, if y'all will just teach them, that's going to be good enough. That's not enough. We must remain in the home steadfast and teaching and praying and even singing songs. This is convicting for me too. I, I'm not standing before you today to say that everything's perfect in the Anderson household. Please don't go interview my wife after this and ask her how beautiful everything is in our home. We struggle too, but what I'm putting before you is that it's not enough for you just to believe in Christ and because you believe in Christ that your kids are just gonna get it we must faithfully disciple them every day 
and at least once a week gather together as a family and read scripture together and sing together and pray together. And if that just sounds impossible to you because you feel like you would be a hypocrite in doing so, here's the beauty of repentance and confession. Go before the Lord and tell him where you feel inadequate. Go before the Lord and tell him where you feel like a hypocrite and get over yourself and trust in Christ. Amen? Oh, I must sit a little deep there. But it's important. And some of you have been doing this and your children still don't believe. And I want to encourage you not to give up. Do not give up. It can be very frustrating as you present Christ to your child and you want to bring them to church and they don't want to be here. And then you put all that responsibility on you. It's not on you. Well, you just made it sound like it was. No, I mean, we're, that's our, we're to be faithful. But salvation is never on us in its completion. We're to be faithful to train and to equip and to model Christ Jesus. But we cannot save Our children must have a faith of their own. There may be children in the room who have a true faith in Christ, but your parents don't. Same for them. Pray for them. But look to Jesus. Jesus had these four brothers who followed him everywhere, and they still did not believe. That ought to remind us that we need to persevere and remain steadfast ourselves. Do not lose hope. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why am I pointing to this verse right now? Because I want to let you know that Christ understands what you're feeling when you're discouraged in your home and there's your children or your parents who don't believe in Jesus. His brothers didn't believe in him. His mom didn't believe in him. But they would come to believe. And this is our hope for everyone that we faithfully share the gospel with that they would come to believe. We must not give up. How striking to know that the unbelievers or the unbelief of his brothers was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 69 verse eight says, I have become a stranger to my brothers an alien to my mother's sons. A stranger to his own brothers. Do not lose hope if you're living with unbelievers. College students, if you're living with an unbeliever in the home, don't give up. If you're rooming with somebody who's an unbeliever right now, don't give up. Remain steadfast. Because we see something very beautiful that involves the brothers of Jesus in Acts chapter one, verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, she believed and his brothers, they believed. May we not lose hope. Verse six, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. So let's go back to what's happening in John chapter seven. Why was their time always here? Because they were of the world. Those who are of the world, their time is always here. 
John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And the very same, because they hated Jesus. Because the world hates Jesus, it's not his time to just go publicly into Jerusalem and say, hey all, I'm the Christ. How tragic is this? How how it reveals the heart of these brothers. They left Christ for the feast. They preferred a religious festival for fellowship with the Christ of God. And how often we witness the same thing today. What zeal there is for religious performances, for forms and ceremonies, and how little heart for Christ himself. Do you have a heart for Christ himself? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to be around Jesus? Meaning you want to go to his word. You want to know everything you can about Jesus. So all of this to say Jesus remains because God's sovereign plan does not call for stupidity, but for humility and trust. For humility and trust. Now, all of this to set up the scene to give you a few points. And we're finished today. Verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Number one, the worldly man hates to acknowledge that he is wicked. The worldly man, the worldly woman, the worldly child hates to acknowledge that he or she is wicked. John 3, 19 through 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. When are our works exposed? When they're held up to the light of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was a Boy Scout, I was given a project. As we went home that night, I was given a brown paper bag inside. There were all kind of random items. We were to take whatever was in that bag. We could only use what was in that bag. We couldn't add anything extra to it. And we were to create something. Now, as I would do, I would wait until the end because I would much rather be outside throwing a ball, running around the neighborhood, being on my bicycle than sitting down and working on something like this. I just did not have the patience for it. But I went for it anyway because I had to go to my meeting with something finished. So I'm working, I'm saying, you know what? This will do, this is good, looks pretty good. I'm really impressed with myself. And so I take my project to Boy Scout meeting say the pledge, we do everything, we sit down, all of a sudden they say, okay, everybody, show us what you have made. And in that moment, when I saw the work of some of the other boys around me, I thought, I don't even wanna take out my project right now. Why? Because compared to their projects, it was bad, really bad. I was embarrassed, but I did, I took it out. I think I still got a badge for it, that was great. But that was truly out of sympathy because it was not from good work. The point I'm making is when it was held up to something really good, it exposed just how bad it really is. And Jesus, his radiant light, when it shines upon us, it exposes just how really bad we are. Jesus shines light upon man's sin, meaning that he holds up their works against the backdrop of his works and his righteousness and man is done for if he thinks that he can continue living his own life. 
because we've been exposed. We have a choice. Worldly man hates that his sin is exposed. Verses 8 and 9 tells his brothers, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up, not publicly, but in private. So number two, Christ is not intimidated by a worldly man's wickedness. It's not that he stayed back because he was intimidated, because he was afraid. No, he was wise. But before we go any further, did Jesus just tell a fib? Did he just tell a lie here? He says, hey, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast. My time has not yet fully come. What does he mean by all this? No, it's that he chose not to go up with his brothers. Many times when we see Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, it's referring to the cross. But through much study this week, and as I've read different commentaries, there's a belief here that what Jesus is saying is he's saying, my time has not yet come. Like, I'm not going with you. I'm not going in public. I'm going to remain here, and I'm going to go up in my own way, in which he does. He follows them not long after that, but he's in private. So even though the Jews sought to kill him, he promptly obeyed the written word. And here, too, he left us an example. On the one hand, danger should not be courted by us. Remember, we, remember we should not be going looking for danger. But on the other hand, when the word of God plainly bids us follow a certain line of conduct, we are to do so no matter what the consequences. Because being a Jewish man, he was required to go to this festival. So he's obeying the word of God, but he goes in private. Christ is not intimidated by a worldly man's wickedness, and neither should we. Neither should we. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him, meaning they were talking in secret among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Number three, the light of Christ reveals the true heart of man. The light of Christ reveals the true heart of man. Basic principles here that is being revealed to us in John chapter seven, the same light shines upon both groups of people. Some say, He's good. Others say he's bad. True son reveals their hearts. Now, whether they're really saying that he's good, like he's perfect, he's the son of God, we don't know here. But we do know that the reaction is some are saying, hey, he's a good man. But what we can take from this is to know that when the true son shines his light upon us, it's the same light upon those who are in their sin. And there will be those who have a soft heart And as they have that soft heart, they will respond and say, I need you, Jesus. But there will be many others say, I don't want you, Jesus. The light of Christ reveals the true heart of man, reveals what's inside. We can be fooled by what's outside. Jesus is not. And then verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is an intimidating group. If you had in mind that these were just religious men um, who just kind of pranced around town, uh, no, these men were scary figures. They were dangerous and they were mad that Jesus is showing them up and revealing what's in their hearts. These men are deadly. They're religious men, 
but they're deadly religious men. Those who fear worldly men will remain silent, but those who fear God will boldly speak of Christ. We all need to pick this up today. Hear it. Those who fear worldly men will remain silent, but those who fear God will boldly speak of Christ. I bid you, I challenge you, church, trust in the steadfast work of Christ. Boldly speak of Christ, no matter what the cost. Never be ashamed of Jesus. Be bold in your faith. Be unashamed of Christ for all that he has done on your behalf. And this is where we need the Holy Spirit to provide us a holy boldness to believe and proclaim the name of Christ. Maybe you would pray this. Holy Spirit, give me a boldness because I'm weak right now. Give me a boldness to speak the name of Jesus in love with great care. But also remember that those whom we're speaking to, we have to trust in what the light of Christ will reveal And many times the light of Christ reveals a hard, stubborn, unwilling heart to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean we stop sharing the gospel with them for we hope for the day when that light shines upon them and reveals now a soft heart by the grace of God. That is our only hope. And it's not a foolish hope. It is a certain hope. Confidence in Christ that indeed he will work and he will save many. And of those in whom he saves is James, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. I want to end on a very good note here. James would later believe, and he would write. The book in which he wrote, titled James, is the book that's referred to as the New Testament Proverbs, challenging us to have a living, active faith. One that is not dead, but one that is alive. He begins his letter in James 1.1 1, 1, saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls him Lord, he calls him Jesus Christ. He didn't open his letter by saying, James, half-brother of Jesus, listen up. No, servant of God, that's who I am. I'm a servant of God. James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I love that imagery. James is holding here the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not giving up. And he's encouraging all those around him, do not give up. Remain steadfast. Trust in the steadfast work of Christ. Jesus displayed for us an unwavering trust and dependence upon the Father. May we, display the same unwavering trust and dependence upon Jesus Christ. Trust in the steadfast work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This message today, I pray that as we have examined this conversation between Jesus and his brothers, what we walk away with is a, a trust. A dependency upon Christ Jesus. Thank you. That he was not foolish, God. That as you sent your son, that he was most wise and that he was steadfast. 
unwavering. That his goal was to bring glory to you, Father, and to save many. And all of those whom he came to save, not any of them, not one of them would be lost. So, Father, as the church, may we take this message today and may we remain in this world, but may we not be of the world. But may we be of Christ Jesus. May we be a humble people, a grateful people filled with wisdom and great love for others. Father, I specifically pray that we will treat people with the love of Jesus Christ. We will never consider ourselves to be better or above or beyond someone else. And that we will never give up on those who are around us. As Jesus did not give up on his brothers, may we not give up on our brothers and sisters who will one day come to faith. We trust you, Lord. As we share the gospel, you do a mighty work. Thank you that we can be so privileged to be so blessed, to call you Father, and to be a part of this great work. May this be our goal, to glorify you, that many may be saved. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.